Welcome to episode 14 of Make Me Watch It, the podcast where you, the listener, tell me which of the movies in my collection I need to watch and podcast about next. This month, we actually have a bit of a doubleheader. Going strictly by voting, Oz the Great and Powerful was next up. But I also had Legends of Oz, Dorothy's Return, available in my collection, so I figured, well, let's do an Oz doubleheader and watch both. And there are going to be some format changes to the podcast in terms of what's eligible and what's not. We'll discuss those in a moment. So first up, the reason I picked up the Oz movies is because I am a fan of the books. I've enjoyed at least the first four that I've read so far by L. Frank Baum. I plan to read all the rest as part of Bedtime in the Public Domain for Bureau 42. But I've been hearing lukewarm reviews, so I was kind of dragging my heels on getting to it. Just watching other things were a higher priority use of my time. I've adjusted my time. I'm trying to get into better shape. So I've been spending a lot of time on the treadmill in the past few months. And I'm at the point now where most of my workdays start at noon, in which case, if the workday starts at noon, I watch at least one movie on the treadmill before work. So with that, we should be seeing a lot more movies that are eligible for Make Me Watch It coming up. So I'm going to start with Oz the Great and Powerful, since that's the one that listeners chose. It was originally released on March 8th, 2013. It was directed by Sam Raimi, who's probably known for a couple of trilogies, notably the original live-action Spider-Man trilogy starring Tobey Maguire as Peter Parker, as well as the Evil Dead and Army of Darkness trilogy. So Mitchell Kapner was the one who came up with a way to adapt it to the screen, although the final screenplay was done by David Lindsay Abair. Now, Mitchell Kapner is best known as a writer on the Whole Nine Yards, Romeo Must Die. He also came up with the characters in the basic story outline for the whole Ten Yards. And then he's done Days of Wrath, Into the Blue 2, and they've announced Oz the Great and Powerful 2. But that could be one of those ones that's announced before the original comes out as a show of faith that helps drive that first weekend box office that doesn't necessarily pan out, and we'll talk about that a bit later. Now, David Lindsay of Bear has nine writing credits to his name, including Robots, Ink Heart, Rise of the Guardians, Shrek the Musical, the 2015 Poltergeist, and The Family Fang. And then he's got Funny Mirrors, which was just announced and due out later in 2018. As far as the stars are concerned, we've got James Franco as Oz. Now, Franco would be known to Sam Raimi fans for playing Harry Osborn in the Spider-Man films of Tobey Maguire and ultimately becoming a goblin in the third film. We've got Mila Kunis, who first hit public consciousness in that 70s show, but who's had a pretty successful career since then. She is Theodora and eventually becomes the Wicked Witch of the West. Rachel Wise of the Stephen Summers Mummy films plays Evanora, her sister, and the Wicked Witch of the East. Michelle Williams plays Glinda in Oz, but this is a series where people important to Oz, as with the 1939 film, are cast both in the real world and in Oz. So she's kind of his ex-girlfriend Annie, who's been proposed to by John Gale. So the intention of the screenwriters is that John and Annie 
would be the parents that Dorothy had that we never actually meet in the source material. So Michelle Williams has 53 acting credits to her name. She'll be in the upcoming Venom as Anne Whaling. She's best known for Blue Valentine, My Week with Marilyn Monroe as Marilyn Monroe, Manchester by the Sea, and Brooke MacMountain. Zach Braff is both Frank and Finley. So Braff is best known for Garden State, Scrubs, and Wish I Was Here. Bill Cobbs is the master tinker, who's known for Hudsucker Proxy, People Under the Stairs, and Demolition Man. He's got 190 acting credits to his name. So even if you don't know him by name, he's very much an, oh, that guy, when you see him. Now, Joey King plays both a girl in a wheelchair and a little China girl. She was in the Independence Day sequel, Wish I Was Here, the Fargo TV series, and The Conjuring. 55 acting credits to her name, which is fairly impressive for a career that's only been running for about 10 years, where she started as Emily in a couple episodes of The Sweet Life of Zack and Cody back in 2006. We've got Tony Cox, who's another one who's not necessarily a household name, but someone you would recognize. He was Marcus in the Bad Santa films. He was Dink in Spaceballs. He was in Me, Myself, and Irene. He was one of the Ewoks in Return of the Jedi. So again, a fairly lengthy career. Now, of course, it wouldn't be a Sam Raimi film if we didn't have cameos by Bruce Campbell and Ted Raimi. Bruce Campbell plays the gatekeeper but at the Gates of Oz, and Ted Raimi plays a skeptic in the audience. Now, by skeptic in the audience, the film starts with Oz as a magician in a traveling circus in Kansas. And we see that, you know, he's a bit of a con man. He uses the same line about having, you know, his grandmother's music box. And, you know, he's passed it on to each girl he meets because grandma would want her to have it. And yet we know from his friend, he's got a pile of these. There's one relationship that seems to be a serious one, but he says, no, you know what, you deserve better, go ahead and be with John, and ends up running away while the tornado's coming because one of his ex-lovers has a husband who is not pleased with him. So when he runs, he escapes in a balloon, gets trapped in the tornado, and comes to Oz. Now, with both Oz movies we're talking about today, one of the issues, even if you're trying to draw from the source material, is that in the public consciousness, the 1939 MGM film is what Oz is to a huge portion of the audience. And that wasn't the world's most accurate adaptation. So as a result, we've got some difficulties trying to reconcile and figure out, well, what are you making it a prequel or sequel to? This is a prequel explaining how Oz became the wonderful Wizard of Oz, how he took on that role, why he's the humbug behind the curtain, All of that does get explained, but along the way, you do have to try and just go through how does he get there? Why is it in this case? And along the way, you've got elements that are more consistent with the 1939 film than the source material. The source material clearly states that it was the Wizard of Oz, so Oz himself, who had them build the Emerald City. Yet in this film, The Emerald City is already there and waiting for a man named after the country to arrive and fulfill a prophecy. We've got the Flying Monkeys, where 
in the novels, or at least in the first novel, it was made very, very clear that they were actually a noble race, but they were cursed and were obligated to grant three wishes to anyone who had a special magic cap. And that's how the Wicked Witch was causing them to do evil things. Here, they just seem to be evil lackeys. And that's in both of the Oz films that we're talking about today. So there are some nice references, but largely to the movie, they get as close as they can to the 1939 movie without violating the MGM copyright. On the whole, I found that this movie doesn't really gel until the third act. The first couple acts are predictable. There's a series of set pieces. You do have some sympathy for Theodora as she's on the path to becoming the Wicked Witch of the West. You've got less sympathy for your main character, Oz, because he's not a nice guy and doesn't learn how to be a nice guy. He's a con artist who who does eventually use his con artist skills to save Oz, yeah. But even though there's some altruism in him, he seems to be motivated primarily by personal gain. He's more about the prophecy that says that, yeah, once you're king, you're going to have ownership of everything in this very, very packed treasure room. But once we get into the third act, and he really starts to pull his con together, I found that's where the, the film starts to come together. That third act is actually fairly strong, as the Wicked Witches are defeated, and Oz the Humbug beats the legitimate magic to come in and save the people. Now, as I said, there was a sequel announced. This movie had a production budget of $215 million, a total domestic gross of $234,911,825, with a foreign box office of 258. So the worldwide box office is $493,311,825. So it's about a two to one ratio with the budget, a little more than that, but not hugely more. So it should be profitable, but not immensely profitable. So they may not just automatically greenlight a sequel because they've got faith in the property. A sequel to this is going to require a very strong script. So now we move on to Legends of Oz, Dorothy's Return. Now I'll be honest, I had no idea this movie even existed. It got a theatrical release on May 9th, 2014. But It was a startup company from East Asia that produced it. Clarius Entertainment was the distributor. I don't know how many theaters it actually managed to penetrate. I certainly don't remember seeing any ads or commercials for it before it came out. I just happened to see it on the shelf at a chain of home video and music stores called HMV that was going belly up in Canada. So when they were going through their closeout bankruptcy sales and I found it on the shelf for a couple bucks, I was interested in Oz, picked it up to take a look at it. And that's why I grabbed it for, like I said, I think it was about $3. It was $2.99, $2 and change. But this is a CGI film with a cast that includes Dan Aykroyd as the Scarecrow. He will, to me, always be Ray Stance from Ghostbusters first and foremost, but his IMDb credit list is not short. Now, Jim Belushi plays the Cowardly Lion, also an SNL alumni, as with Dan Aykroyd, the Saturday Night Live crew, plus, you know, World According to Jim, Eight Simple Rules for Dating My Teenage Daughter, and so forth. The Tin Man is voiced by Kelsey Grammer, best known as Fraser Crane on Cheers and the Fraser spinoff. The villain, the jester, is Martin Short, 
who is an SCTV alumnus, Canadian comedian. Oliver Platt is Wiser the Owl. So he is best known for 2012, The Three Musketeers, like Placid, Bicentennial Man. But again, no shortage of credits on his IMDb listing. Bernadette Peters is Glinda. She's known for The Jerk, Pennies from Heaven, Anastasia, Annie. There's, again, no shortage of work on her resume, 70 credits, including a lot of regular TV stints. Dorothy is played by Leah Michelle. She's best known for Glee, New Year's Eve, and Scream Queens. She's got a much shorter filmography, only 11 credits, and this is one of her best-known properties. We've got Tacey Adams as Aunt M, known for American Horror Story, Grey's Anatomy, Scandal, and Good Girls Revolt. 45 credits to her name. Now, Brian Blessed plays Judge Jawbreaker. So he's known for playing Boss Nass in the Star Wars prequels. He was Prince Voltan in Flash Gordon. He was in Henry V. He was Clayton in Disney's Tarzan. He's appeared on the classic Doctor Who. Definitely no shortage of credits to his name. He's got 171 of them listed on the IMDb. And another very notable name that we've got here is Patrick Stewart as Tug, the boat. Patrick Stewart is probably best known for playing Jean-Luc Picard in Star Trek The Next Generation, as well as Professor Charles Xavier in the X-Men films. So this had one heck of a cast. Now, it was released on May 9th, 2014. It was directed by Will Finn. He's only got four directing credits to his name, starting with Home on the Range. Then a couple shorts, A Dairy Tale, and Hammy's Boomerang Adventure. This is his fourth director credit. He was in the art department on Slimer and the Real Ghostbusters, Tiny Toon Adventures, The Rescuers Down Under, Aladdin the Return of Jafar, Pocahontas, Hunchback of Notre Dame, the Clerks animated series. He was in the animation department on Secret of Nim. He helped write Home on the Range. So he definitely has a robust resume, just not a whole lot in the directing department. Now, his co-director was Dan St. Clair, who also directed Everyone's a Hero, Quantum Quest, A Cassini Space Odyssey, and Only a Dream. But again, he's got a lot of credits in the art departments of things like he-Man and the Masters of the Universe, She-Ra, Princess of Power. Not the real Ghostbusters that came out of the movie, but Ghostbusters, the filmation animation series. Brave Star. So even if you don't know these guys by names, if you grew up watching the cartoons that were on the air in the 1980s, you know their work. Now, Dan St. Pierre contributed to the script, but the screenplay was by Randy Barnes and Andy Balsam based on a book by Roger Stantonbaum, descendant of L. Frank Baum, that was written in 1989. No one's not public domain. I haven't read it. It's not on Project Gutenberg, but that is the source material. Randy Barnes is best known for Imagination Movers, Girl Meets World, Status Update. She's got 13 writing credits to her name, including a number of TV series. Now, Adam Balsam has eight writing credits to his name, including one episode of Murphy Brown in 1997, Animal Tracks, the TV series from 2001, and then skips ahead to 2011. So this is his fourth writing credit that came 16 years after his first writing credit. 
Now, of the two films, I found that this was more consistent in tone with the L. Frank Baum books that I've read. You know, the first one, Oz seduces multiple women. You even hear one of them talk about how she can still feel the warmth of his body pressed up against hers the night before. That's not territory that L. Frank Baum would have gone into. Legends of Oz is much more family-friendly. It's aimed at a much younger audience, which is, I think, more consistent with L. Frank Baum's work. It may not be as engaging to the audience. Where Oz the Great and Powerful has an average IMDb user score of 6.3 out of 10, Legends of Oz is only 5.5. Well, personally, I preferred Legends more. It's more in tone with the MGM film, you know, brighter color palette. You see people who would be happy in this world. It's a little more fantastic situations. It had things like the China Village and Candy County and something that's, you know, a little bit more of a richer experience and feels more like the Oz novels, multiple songs, again, by some prominent musical artists. So they they didn't skimp on talent here. It didn't find its way into many theaters, though. So the original plan was to release it directly to home video, but they felt it was strong enough to compete in theaters. And they had plans for a sequel film, as well as an ongoing TV series. I don't think we're ever going to see that. The production budget was $70 million, and a fair chunk of that almost certainly went to that cast that we listed off. There's no shortage of talented people providing these voices. To recoup that production budget of $70 million, they took in a domestic gross of $8,462,027, a foreign box office of $10,200,000. That makes the total worldwide box office $18,662,027, which is over $50 million shy of the production budget, before we talk about profit sharing with distributors, theaters. There's no way that a bunch of DVD sales, especially at the prices that I got it at, are going to help them recoup this cost. Which is unfortunate, because as I said, even though most people enjoyed this less than Oz the Great and Powerful. I enjoyed it more. I found it was more consistent with the tone and spirit of the originals. And I suspect if it had a Warner Brothers or an MGM or one of the major studios acting as distributor, it would have done much better. It would have had a stronger marketing campaign behind it. And it would have just ended up on more screens. It made it into almost 2,000... 700 theaters. It was 2,658 theaters opening weekend. Whereas, you know, at that time, a lot of movies were opening on more like eight or 9,000, especially the family friendly Disney style films. And family films that don't have the Disney name do have a much tougher time succeeding in the box office. But frankly, this is better than some of Disney's output. Their tentpoles are usually pretty strong. But I enjoyed this more than, say, Cars 2, coming out of Pixar. In any event, that wraps up our Oz doubleheader. Now, I did say there's going to be some format changes. I am spending a lot of time on the treadmill, so I'm watching movies faster than I can podcast about them, and I'm trying to dig through the movies I've never seen, which is going through a lot of the movies that have been eligible for Make Me Watch It. But I don't want to detract from that, so I'm opening up the Make Me Watch It Voting to any movie I own but haven't recorded a podcast about. 
whether that's one of my own podcasts, you know, some of the greatest science fiction film tournament podcasts that we've done through Bureau 42, whether it's guest spots on Is It Jaws over at the Two True Freaks Network, anything like that. So if I've never podcasted about a movie in my collection, then it's eligible with four exceptions. Trey Hooks and I have already started recording a series where we're going to go through every Best Picture winner to date. So those movies are not eligible because there's already plans for them. Similarly, I have plans for every film ever directed by Stanley Kubrick or every surviving film directed by Alfred Hitchcock. The fourth exception category, I do own one film that was directed by Roman Polanski, which I didn't know was directed by Roman Polanski when I bought the 50-movie box set that it was in. That is not eligible because I am aware of Polanski's activities off-screen. I don't want to get into it here. There's a whole Wikipedia page about that if you're interested. But because of what I know about the man, I cannot judge his work accurately. I cannot put that out of my head. I don't even want to watch his films while the man still lives. So I'm not going to include that because there's an open debate about whether or not a person's conduct off screen should determine whether or not you consume their work on screen. Some people say let the work stand for itself. Some people say no, take the moral stand. For years I was saying I just won't watch his films while the man is alive and out of jail. I've realized that even when he's passed away because of what he did, I'm not going to be able to let that go enough to sit down and watch any of his films fairly. So I'm not going to be able to watch a Roman Polanski film for the rest of my life. And I am okay with that. So at some point in the next few days here, it'll be announced on Bureau 42, every film that's eligible is going to show up on a letterboxed list. And then the votes will be freeform typing. You just go to a Google form link that's going to be provided and type in the names of 10 films at most, that you'd like to see covered, and I'm just going to tally up the most popular votes and decide the next film that way. But this will open up the field to movies I own that I have seen before, so there's going to be far more options. If you're familiar with letterbox lists, you will have the ability to sort and filter them when you're looking at them, so you could go by duration, sort by highest average user score, lowest average user score. You can filter by director. You can get letterboxed accounts for free, or you can choose to pay for accounts that are upgraded. I've recently upgraded to the Pro package, and I'm quite happy with it. So watch for those links in the next few days, and thank you for listening.